Welcome back to Lighting the Pipes Noir. My name is Joshua Taylor, and this is a sister podcast to Lighting the Pipes, where Scott Powell and I discuss the mystery novel. But on this companion series, I focus solely on film noirs. Film noirs from the classical Hollywood era, circa 1941 to 1960. In a previous episode, I reviewed Dark Passage, that third Bogey Bacall outing, memorably boasting some innovative camera techniques, if you recall first-person perspective in the first half of the film until they revealed Bogey, some interesting attempts at storytelling visually in that film. But I'm bringing up this film in particular because it was adapted from a novel by David Goodis. It ended up on Humphrey Bogart's desk and he read it and that's why he made Dark Passage into a movie. But in regard to Goodis is how he had a distinct perspective in his writing. He was skilled in conveying intense empathy with the outliers of society. We're talking petty crooks, prostitutes, vagrants, addicts, and so forth. He wasn't the first novelist to do this, obviously. Uh, one can think of Charles Dickens. Even mystery writers like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie did this in some capacity. Even Raymond Chandler. And it's no surprise that some filmmakers in Hollywood, you know, where sentimentality was born, could convey similar empathy in the subjects of a movie narrative. But allow me to continue to be enigmatic about this for a few more sentences. <laughs> The film was directed by a filmmaker who emphasized with the same lower tier of society that Goodis and others of his style were on about. This filmmaker, who as a crime reporter in his previous career, witnessed these individuals and their misdeeds, their trials and tribulations, firsthand. This man was a figure in the industry that generated a non-feigned sentimentality in his subject. Many called him a director with sensationalist and poetic tendencies, some to praise him, others to condemn his output. And the man I'm speaking of is Samuel Fuller. And we will be digging our heels into his 1953 thriller, Pick Up on South Street, starring Richard Widmark, Gene Peters, Thelma Ritter, and Richard Kiley. Full confession, I'm not as familiar with Samuel Fuller as a film major should be. I recall his name in conjunction to independent filmmaking, particularly the films White Dog from 1982 and the Lee Marvin and Mark Hamill starring war film that Fuller produced and directed called The Big Red One. Moving on, I knew he was a maverick independent filmmaker, but was not aware that he went as far back as the studio system under Daryl F. Zanuck at 20th Century Fox in the late 1940s and early 50s. It wasn't until I read Dark City, uh, Eddie Mueller's beautiful and wittily written abstract exploration of what I can only describe as the film noir cinematic universe, if there is such a thing, condensed into a fantastic den of sin and inequity called Dark City. Now, Eddie Mueller is one of the top film scholars uh, in the world, particularly when it comes to film noir. He has festivals, uh, film noir festivals in Los Angeles all the time. He's a host on uh, Turner Classic Movies, propping up film noir. Uh, he's been a big player in the, in the whole critical movement and celebration of film noir for quite some time. One of his chapters in Dark City is called Loser's Lane. It's a chapter of filmic analysis, as well as a geographical location in his ultimate noir city, this dark city. And the first denizen of Loser's Lane that Mueller refers to is a character played none other than Richard Widmark, who is, of course, the star of Pickup on South Street. It's from the film Widmark made with director Jules Dassin, Night and the City, uh, in 1950. But Mueller is keen to connect us back to Widmark's breakthrough role, 
the one that I knew from pop culture that has burned into the minds of many literate filmgoers, and that is Widmark from Kiss of Death pushing a defenseless old lady in a wheelchair down the stairs. Widmark was one of those actors who played classic villains so well, like Lawrence Tierney and Dan Duria before him. Like Duria, Widmark was a wholesome family man in real life and despised violence. But he played bad guys so well that there was always a part made for him. He was able to put his talent to the test when he played a more ambiguous character in Pick Up on South Street. Now, Elia Kazan with Panic in the Streets had already given Widmark a chance to play a good guy when he was a reporter up against Jack Palance in that film. But people wanted the anxious, unsettling villain from Kiss of Death, from the original Roadhouse, and of course from the westerns that he starred in as well. Going back to Dark City, when it comes to Pick Up on South Street, Mueller goes into an exploration of Widmark's pickpocket protagonist, Skip McCoy. He also provides a passage devoted to director Samuel Filler, talking about his career as a crime reporter turned maverick director of the late studio era, eventually leaving the system and going completely independent to tell the stories that he wanted to tell. Needless to say, the plot of Pick Up on South Street intrigued me enough to check out the film and push it to you guys in this series. And it's shot and filmed like a noir. It contains world-weary, fatalist, noir-esque themes. You just need to replace the classical noir protagonist as an actual criminal. And it had adversaries are not femme fatales or crime bosses, but the police, the federal government, and the Reds. That's right, it's 1953, so we have waded into the McCarthy era, and the communist threat is being espoused everywhere, including Hollywood. Now, to get an idea of Fuller, and also the idea of the plot of Pick Up on South Street, without revealing too much before my summary, here is the story premise set up by Samuel Fuller himself. So, thank you Criterion Collection booklets. My yarn opens in the New York subway at rush hour. There isn't a single word of dialogue in the scene. People are packed together on the crowded train like sardines. Candy is being trailed by two FBI agents when Skip masterfully edges closer and closer to her and slowly opens her pocketbook, drawing out her purse with his agile fingers. Like a neurosurgeon, his hands are his future. Skip doesn't know that there's a piece of microfilm in Candy's grifted purse. It contains a new patent for a chemical formula. Joey, her ex-boyfriend and a son of a bitch, is selling the hot item to some communist spy ring. Candy's making the delivery until Skip filches the microfilm without knowing its value. Joey and the spies will go to any length to recover it. That gives you an inkling as to how Fuller is approaching a very familiar type of story that Hollywood was making at the time, that the culture at the time was demanding. Given his incisive edge to the plot, you'd be right to guess that Fuller wrote the film as well. He did. He wrote it after picking up Dwight Taylor's original script, Blaze of Glory. The original screenwriter, uh, this Dwight Taylor, he started out working for The New Yorker, uh, particularly the talk of the town setting, and fitting in right with that hoity-toity scene with his witty, urbane sense of humor. He would later write the film Noir that, that released simultaneously with The Maltese Falcon, and that is the Betty Grable and Victor Mature starer, I Wake Up Screaming. He made good scripts, and if you got a good director, they could turn out a good movie with his product. Back to Fuller, he borrowed the A-plot of Taylor's script, that of a woman lawyer falling in love with a criminal. The conceit was Taylor's, but what Fuller developed from that foundation was clearly inspired by his own experience in crime journalism. And here we come to the man himself. Samuel Fuller was born in August of 1912 in Worcester, Massachusetts, from a family of Jewish background. Prior to immigrating to the States, his family name was Rabinovich, which was then changed to Fuller. Samuel would lose the father at the age of 11, which was followed by his family moving from Worcester to New York City. 
A year later, young Samuel was working as a newspaper copyboy. Through his tenuous connection, he worked his way from the printing floor to the bullpen upstairs, starting out as a crime reporter for a premier scandal sheet of New York society, the New York Daily Graphic, and he was only 17 years old. He would stay in this vocation for the next two decades. In this time, Samuel Fuller was exposed to the dregs of humanity, not to mention first witness to the aftermath of violent crimes throughout New York City. One could compare Fuller in this fashion to David Simon, the former Baltimore Sun crime reporter who created the NBC procedural Homicide, Life on the Streets, and later the HBO crime epic The Wire. Both Simon and Fuller had an ambition for authentic social realism in their filmmaking. But more on Fuller. Going back to social realism and filmmaking, it comes to no surprise that Fuller was fond of the growing neorealist movement in Italian cinema. Given his profession, Fuller was cynical as to what Hollywood had to offer. But the neorealist films of Roberto Rossellini and Vittoria De Sica, the directors of Rome, Open City, and The Bicycle Thief, respectively, these were films that were shot on real locations that began with the premise and evolved from there. They utilized the war-torn ruins of Italian cities, non-actors, and emphasized real stories of everyday life. Also, we can't dent the prevalence of propaganda films, particularly war propaganda at this time, combining with the neorealist movement establishing a renaissance of documentary filmmaking. These influences Fuller would bring to his movies. Let's jump forward to 1952. Fuller had some screenplays in the 40s, B-pictures, and films like Hot Off the Press, Federal Manhunt, Bowery Boy, Margin for Era, etc., etc. One of his novels was turned, etc., etc. is not a novel, by the way, just etc., etc., exactly what it means. But one of his novels was turned into a basis for the newspaper drama Scandal Sheet in 1951. So he had established himself in Hollywood post-journalist career. In 1950, Fuller had left journalism for the front gates of 20th Century Fox Studios under Daryl F. Zanuck. But unlike Otto Preminger, Fuller and Zanuck got on famously. After two breakthrough films, Underworld USA and the 19th century newspaper epic Park Row, Fuller had established himself in Tinseltown. It was Zanuck who delivered Blaze of Glory on Fuller's waiting lap. Eschewing the, the two lovers from Taylor's screenplay, Fuller rewrote the script from scratch. He wanted to call it Pickpocket, but famously the studio told him it sounded too European. Okay. His protagonist was a pickpocket. What was wrong with that? Pickpockets were known in street parlance, something in his previous life Fuller was very aware of, as a canon. And that's what his protagonist Skip McCoy was, a very good canon. Additionally, the apolitical but cynical filler wanted to take a crack at McCarthyism and chose the antagonists to be communist spies. The Red Scare had consumed many people, this he knew, and was still a sore part in the industry, a story of loss and betrayal, if I were to go on further. And at one point, I will be reviewing a film starring John Garfield, and I will use him for a case study of the hideous damage the HUAC hearings did to the lives of American citizens working in the film industry. A man of facts to the death, despite his own experience with pickpockets and crime reporting, Fuller wanted to get his facts straight. He consulted with Captain Dan Campion of the New York Police Department, the head of the Pickpocket and Small Crimes Task Force. It was Campion who inspired the character of Lieutenant Dan Tiger in the film. About that, Fuller says, For my research, I went back to New York and paid a visit to Detective Dan Campion of the NYPD. He gave me plenty of background material to make Pickup look realistic. Campion knew every canon in the city. They knew him too. One look at Campion's face on a subway and any self-respecting pickpocket who wanted to stay out of prison abandoned his prey instantly. 
The captain gave the cannon some rope to exercise her craft, though you never saw that kind of thing in a movie. When Campion came down on a pickpocket, he came down hard. He'd been suspended without salary for six months for manhandling a suspect. I based Tiger on Campion, making my cop one tough son of a bitch, too. Another example of the research and detail that Fuller puts into his filmmaking, which he can't help due to his past background. Another interview with Fuller years later, I was able to pick up these Bon Mots and just to consider some of these words of wisdom from Samuel Fuller. The power of the camera is exactly like boldface type. You can't compete with it. Don't talk about it. Show it. Do what you can't do on the stage or the radio. Show it, rehearse it, and rehearse it, and then shoot it. As you can see, there's some definite gems there. Going back to pick up on South Street, with all of this behind us, Fuller quickly cranked out a screenplay. The shooting script was called Pick Up on South Street. A plea Zanuck assigned the production to Jewel Shermer, leaving Fuller to put his picture together. To visualize his ambition for realism, Fuller drew up basic sketches for what he had in mind for interior settings, the decor that would convey the depth of realism he wanted to portray. Lyle Wheeler, his art director, generated the most lived-in environments, dilapidated run-down apartment buildings and apartment rooms, trashy alleyways, crowded subway stations and subway cars with extras blending in seamlessly as commuters. This gave the proceedings a verisimilitude, utilizing these sets and making them look real. For those who have seen the film, you might be shocked to know that 99.99% of it was shot on a studio set in Hollywood. Less than a handful of scenes were actual location footage, just establishing shots and inserts. In one moment, where the candy character is walking across a busy downtown street, that being Los Angeles downtown, standing in for midtown Manhattan. The DOP, cinematographer Jill McDonald, and Fuller worked in tandem to create this real effect. Fuller even designed the waterfront stilt shack that Skip McCoy calls home, by crafting a small wooden model, complete with a budget pulley system. And while it's strange, almost Hollywood-esque retreat for the protagonist, especially in a gritty film such as this, Fuller had seen many places like this in his younger days. Even with thugs and miscreants and poorly paid stuvadors pulling up crates of cold liquid from the river to keep it cold when they couldn't afford a fridge. As for Fuller and McDonald, Fuller ensured that they followed the script verbatim, shooting in cramped spaces around phone booths, under, under the waterfront shacks and cramped apartments with items in the foreground, such as a rack of ties, zooming in through these veils to the actions behind these obstructions, inundating his hosts of colorful, believable characters of this world in a realistic clutter. He shot down the shaft of dumbwaiters and from high angles of his subway station set, letting us see all of the movements of the actors and stuntmen performing the actions of the climatic subway fight. In another interview, Fuller offers his pro tip to aspiring filmmakers. Put a lot of money aside for your stunt crew. Fuller believed the camera should have a musical tempo. Every frame of the film must be preloaded with information, placed deliberately to convey the story. Indeed, Fuller, going back to his own quotes, writes with the camera, eschewing textual exposition visa inserts and dialogue in exchange for a minefield of meaning in his mise-en-scene. As for the casting of the film, I've discussed Widmark and his reputation. He was a contract player for Fox, so casting him was a no-brainer from the get-go. Widmark played these anxious, simmering with anger, like a fuse being lit kind of character. He brings an anxiety of uneasiness that can so easily erupt into sudden violence. Think of the funny scene in Goodfellas between Leota and Pesci, and you get what I mean. That omniprisent feeling of unpredictable yet predictable violence emanating from these characters. You can see it with James Cagney in Public Enemy, 
and you can see it in films like Kiss of Death and Roadhouse with Widmark. Now, the casting of Pickup's leading lady wasn't as easy-peasy. Jean Peters was not the first choice to play Candy. Initially, Betty Grable, one of the highest-paid stars at Fox at the time, was pushing for the role, but the musical star was the exact opposite of what Fuller wanted for the role. He even said no to Marilyn Monroe, whom he admitted was more intelligent than she let on, but lacked the sense of tough street girl and attitude he wanted an actress to convey in Candy. Next on the list was the ingenue Jean Peters, fresh off a low-budget epic called The Captain from Castile. He was not impressed with her performance as a gypsy woman and continued his search for his candy. By chance, he was at lunch with a few of his friends, and one of them spotted their friend, Jean Peters, and called her over to the table. The first thing Fuller noticed was her fine-shaped legs, but in conversation was struck by her intellect and her opinions on a variety of topics. She was snarky at first, a little passive-aggressive, but he liked her moxie, he liked her spunkiness. He offered her the part. Bottom of the barrel was her repost. He admitted her talent and also how perfect her legs were. That was a deciding factor in casting her as Candy. She walked bow-legged like someone who had been walking the streets for some time, as would fit Candy's personality and her background. Thelma Ritter, character actress extraordinaire, was cast as Moe the Stooley and ended up stealing the film despite steamy chemistry between Widmark and Peters. But if you've seen Rear Window or anything Ritter is in, that's just what she does, steal the movie. Rowing out the cast, Richard Cowley was cast as Joey. Candy's ersatz, commie, I, I suppose, given his allegiances, boyfriend. That son of a bitch of a boyfriend, as Fuller proudly states. Some fun facts about the production include Jean Peters revealing herself as the latest squeeze of Howard Hughes. Yes, that Howard Hughes. During the filming, Fuller and crew had noticed a car park near the set with a single driver behind the wheel. When Fuller confronted the individual slash possible fan stalker, the driver took off. Only after from Peters did he learn it was the reclusive aviationist innovationist Howard Hughes. Things were cool from the start between Widmark and Fuller. Widmark had a small case of star power going to his head, which made him incredibly arrogant with a second-rate director like Fuller. Or that's how Widmark saw him anyways. He wasn't a Cortez or a Preminger or a Houston, so therefore he could throw his weight around. The script called for Skip to walk slowly through the precinct, talking to staff with small conversations as he made his way to the office of Lieutenant Tiger, his police nemesis. But Widmark felt his character would just storm right into the office. Fuller had emphasized he wrote the scene that, that way to demonstrate to the audiences how many times he had been there. Everyone knew who he was, but he decided to play it Widmark's way and drop the stops along the way from the script. With some time, Widmark cooled down and realized it was the right choice for the character and asked Fuller to change it back. But Fuller refused. Not enough time and all that. Especially after already shooting the scene the way that Widmark had suggested. It was in the can. As I mentioned, rehearse, 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 then shoot it. That was Fuller's style. So it speaks for Widmark's deep integrity as an artist that he put aside his pride to realize it was a great thing for his character, and now Fuller had taken it away from him, though he was the one who came up with the, the idea and the script. After that, Fuller did not have another problem with Widmark. Zanuck was mostly happy with the production. Fuller shot it within budget and on time, such as his rehearse and rehearse and then shoot once rule had demonstrated. The Breen office of the production code wasn't happy with the way Peter's Candy and Kylie's Joey frisked each other, and from the time the shooting script was completed, they demanded rewrites and retakes of the scene where a character beats a living hell out of another character, a woman in fact. Also not happy was J. Edgar Hoover. At a luncheon, he told Zanuck and Fuller that he detested Fuller's style in previous films and in the screening of Pickup on South Street he recently attended. 
Widmark Skip McCoy was lacking patriotism. His famous line, are you waving the flag at me, was originally, are you waving the goddamn flag at me? Fuller had Zanuck at his back, however, and Zanuck, a man of clout himself, told Hoover where to go in a nice, polite way, resulting in tiny compromises. Meanwhile, left-wing filmmakers and film critics actually disliked the film, including Vittoria De Sica, Fuller's neorealist hero. In France, the leftist-leaning film board crafted the dubbed version of Pickup so it would be about drugs and not about evil reds. Its French title translated to Drugs Harbor. Fuller had intended to make an apolitical film out of Pickup on South Street. He saw Joey, Candy's boyfriend, as not a communist villain, but just a mercenary who would do anything for a buck. U.S. and Russia be damned. He only worked for the communists because he smuggled information. But it just goes to show that you can't please everybody. Everyone has their own perspective. And as a journalist turned filmmaker, Samuel Fuller was very aware of this. Eventually, he would leave Hollywood for less restraining pastures. But he left a legacy of fascinating films, both within the studio system and outside it. That concludes my history of the production of Pickup on South Street. Now is the time where I present a little plot summary for your listening pleasure. Again, I warn you, spoilers are ahead for those who have not seen the film. So if you don't want to be spoiled before my review, pause now and go watch the film, then come back and see if I hit the fine points on the narrative or not. When the summary is done, you can enjoy the review. All right, grab your tickets, keep the stub when it's torn, and push through that turnstile. We are entering the New York subway system circa 1953. We open with, well, a pickup on South Street, or more appropriately, a pickpocketing on South Street. A woman, among many, but this one is singled out by the camera, is riding the New York Metro Underground, and is clearly being observed by two men in suits in the cramped subway car. She is also being observed by a tall, moderately handsome fellow, who by the next stop is standing right in front of her reading the newspaper. Briefly, they make eye contact. It's almost a meet-cute moment, except for the fact that the man is opening her purse and after more staring at her and then back to the paper and then back to her, removing a wallet from said purse. The two suits can only watch in shock as the woman is separated from her wallet. Another stop, a mass of people exit the car. They lose the pickpocket in the human tide. But keep after the woman who gets off and once reaching the surface, walks into the foyer of an office building and discovers that her wallet is missing. She crawls into a phone booth and calls her boyfriend, or is it ex-boyfriend? His name is Joey. When she explains her wallet was stolen, of that she is sure, remembering the pickpocket as she got a really good look at him, Joey is perturbed, a little too perturbed for a stolen wallet, perhaps. He tells Candy, that's her name, to come back to the apartment. We soon learn that the two men are feds. The older fed, Zara, reaches out to the NYPD, meeting with the head of a petty crime pickpocket task force, Lieutenant Dan Tiger. Tiger gives him a whole shoebox full of mugshots of known pickpockets, or cannons. Zara makes himself comfortable and begins to sort through the files. Meanwhile, Candy returns to the apartment. Joey tells her that the wallet she was bringing to his office was no ordinary wallet. Well, it is an ordinary wallet, but its contents differ from other wallets. Inside was a microfilm of sensitive corporate information, and he needs it back. It's cutthroat big business shenanigans, he tells her, and orders her to find the pickpocket, suggesting she use her sources from what is implied as her street-walking days. He promises to leave her alone if she does him this one favor. So our now tall, handsome pickpocket has two forces set against him. Zara and Tiger are not having much luck with the mugshots, so Tiger brings in Mo, a CI or stoolie known to give intel to the police for a quick buck. 
She is past middle age and appears very tired of the life. She brings in a suitcase of ties in hopes of selling more to the precinct. She has one in mind for Zara, but is reticent to give anything away, not when she can get something out of it. Tiger knows how to handle Mo. She is putting money aside from her hustling to pay for a nice grave plot and is terrified of the alternative, getting scattered across Potter's field with no grave marker, no memory of who she was. Zara gives her a description, a vague one that Mo dismisses but asks questions about. Zara describes how the purse was open and the wallet removed, the fact that the cannon utilized a newspaper. She writes down a list of 10 names in which Tiger scrutinizes immediately. As soon as he sees a name, Skip McCoy, this Tiger is burning bright. He is sure that the recently released from prison McCoy is a man he is looking for. Mo haggles them even more, $50 more to give them Skip's location. Our pickpocket arrives in the dockyard somewhere on the Manhattan waterfront. He crosses a small rickety wooden plank bridge to a shack on stilts rising out of the river. It's a good setup, complete with hammock and a crate on a pulley that he retrieves from the cold river, a makeshift fridge to keep his beer cold. Additionally, the crate has a secret compartment on the bottom. In the compartment is a, is a circular tin can in a sealed plastic bag. With the can out on the table, he dots the contents of his pickpocketing into the can when he gets to the wallet and he examines it piece by piece and falls upon a reel of microfilm. Shrugging, he places the wallet and the reel into the can and stores it in the secret compartment. Time to enjoy a cold one at the end of a hard day. Alas, two cops, Monaki and McDonald, of whom he is on the last name basis with, they tell him he's wanted at the precinct. When he arrives, he breezes into Tiger's office with an attitude of confidence mixed with insolence. When Zara tells him that the contents of the wallet contain sensitive information and that he is not concerned with the wallet being stolen only to retrieve the contents, Skip continues to deny everything whilst mocking Zara and Tiger's plight. Tiger is furious, but Skip knows that he can't do anything, especially roughing him up, of which we learn Skip brought the lawyers down hard on Tiger when that happened previously. Zara implores him to serve his country, using the words treason and commies. Are you waving the flag at me, he scoffs, and walks out. Zara and Tiger, powerless to stop him because of his pesky civil rights. Skip keeps up his demeanor all the way to the shack, where retrieving his beer crate and its secret contents, one particular item in mind, heads to the New York Public Library and utilizes the microfiche to view the reel. It's some sort of chemical compound. The feds are after this? That's right, Skip, and so are the commies. Candy meets with a gangster named Lightning Louie in, in a downtown Manhattan Chinese restaurant. She puts money down on the table and Louie slurps noodles as she is forced to put more money down. He tells her to go find Mo. She knows about cannons and other ne'er-do-wells in the South Street area. Mo lives in a cramped hoarder-esque apartment above a tattoo parlor. She identifies Candy as the quote-unquote muffin in Tiger and Zara's story about Skip and gives her Skip's location. For a price, of course, and a tie. Skip returns quote-unquote home just as Candy is searching his place in the dead of night. He spots the flashlight moving around and knowing his place well, sneaks in and surprises her with a knockout punch. Did he realize she was a woman? I don't know. He wakes her up by pouring some of his cold beer on her face. She doesn't care about the wallet being stolen, she just needs to film inside the wallet. It's for her mother. It contains pictures of her brother on the front lines of Korea. It's very important. He is tender with her despite the interrogation, massaging her sore jaw as she tells her story. So we can see how she might get along with Skip. They're, they even kiss. Is she recipient to his advances or is she partly seducing him or are they both trying to do that to the other with possible love in the cracks between the wooden boards of this love shack? It's debatable as he tells her to shake down her mother for a bigger payoff and send her on her way. A fed sees Candy leave and follows her. Tiger soon shows up, holding back his anger and pride by offering Skip amnesty for giving up the reel. 
Skip doesn't trust him and maintain his deniability. Tiger reminds us that he wants to send Skip to the electric chair and takes off having left his offer from Zara. Joey is waiting patiently but frenetically at his apartment. Candy returns to let him know that Skip wants more for the reel. Joey gives her 500 bucks to do the job and asks her to rendezvous with him at his office. Candy returns to the shack, finding Skip lounging beneath right next to the water. It's another quasi-romantic moment, but when he finds out she has only $500, he tosses her out, calling her a no-good commie and demanding her commie bosses give him 25 grand. Candy arrives at Joey's office, empty-handed. But it's not just Joey in the office. There is another guy sitting at the desk with Joey, the subordinate, on the couch. A large man is sitting in an armchair near the door, smoking a cigar. She tells him that he wants 25k for the reel, that he won't play ball. Candy is upset and panicking. She mutters out loud what she is starting to believe to be true, but Skip said they were commies and they are smuggling state secrets. The silence is damning. Candy is stricken. The large man with the cigars has something along the lines of, security can't get involved with this, security just needs it to get it done, and walks out. The man at the desk pulls a gun from his drawer and leaves it there with implicit instructions to get this cleaned up. When they are alone, gun in hand, Joey comes to pathetic but ferocious life. He is an animal trapped into a corner and will do anything to survive. He doesn't care about Candy's contempt for him now. He just wants Skip. He demands for Skip's address. Candy, choosing her side, Skip's side, gives Joey the wrong address. Not wasting any time, she heads to Moe's apartment to warn Moe that Joey, once he realizes that Skip isn't at the address she gave, Joey will use the same sources to come knocking on Moe's door. She tells him not to tell Joey where Skip lives. Later, Moe finds Skip having a coffee at a nearby diner and tells him to stay away from the shack. The commies are after him. She also puts up a good fight for him to trust Candy. Despite everything, she cares for him. Mo attempts to ingrain that in Skip's brain. Mo ends her night hustling more ties and warily returns to her cramped apartment. She turns on her record player and settles down for another lonely night on her dilapidated bed when she realizes she is not alone. It's Joey, gun in hand, asking for Skip's location. She says she will gladly give info away to the police about Skip or anybody. It's a code among thieves and hustlers. You got to do what you got to do to survive. But she's still a patriot enough not to throw away her country. And she won't give Joey what he wants. She's tired and she doesn't care. The camera pans away and we only hear the gunshots. Moe's murder brings the popos to Skip's shack. Monarchy and McDonald accost him as he is potential suspect. For the first time in the film, Skip is crestfallen. Moe's death has shocked him to the core. One of the feds who was tailing him soon shows up to exonerate him assuring the police that Skip was at the shack at the time of the murder. Skip immediately retrieves Moe's body from the barge to Potter's Field. The police help him load the body onto the police boat so he can bury her where she intended. He returns from his good, honorable deed to find Candy waiting for him. She too is mortified by Moe's death and reveals her old lady is her boyfriend Joey and is working with the commies. Skip wants Joey's address and he wants a meet and to end this once and for all. It's apparent to Candy that Skip might do something stupid and get killed. She manages to hit him from behind before he leaves. She retrieves the film from his pockets and shows up at Tiger's police precinct. She gives Zara and Tiger the reel, but wants a deal for her and Skip, so she agrees to set up Joey. She is to deliver the film to Joey at the apartment, and they will follow him to the drop-off. Candy is in the bath when Joey arrives, part of her strategy to stall him. Joey is impatient and is close to knocking down the bathroom door and dragging her out. When she emerges in her bathrobe, he demands the reel. She walks over to her purse and gives him the reel. Joey examines it. To his horror and utter fury, he discovers a crucial frame is missing from the microfilm. He screams at her to give him Skip, but she refuses, which resulted in him first slapping her and then throwing her around the apartment. She tries to fight back eventually and puts up a good resolve, knocking him over. Joey goes for his gun on the floor and fires a shot that hits Candy as she tries to run out of the apartment. 
The gunshots reveal the presence of the police and feds nearby, and Joey sees them coming from the window. He searches her purse frantically and discovers the address that Skip had given her earlier. With purse in hand, he tucks into his coat, and unable to exit through the door of the apartment, hides in the dumbwaiter. Zara soon enters. Candy is still alive. He calls for an ambulance while combing the place for Joey. Joey miraculously navigates the ropes of the waiter so he is midway between the floors as Zara and Co. search for him. Agent Gibbs manages to spot the dumbwaiter exit in an alleyway outside but is surprised when Joey bursts through and kills him, escaping the net Zara has placed around the building. We next see Candy in the hospital, still alive with a minor gunshot but with a beat up face. The police let Skip visit her. He's not mad about the deal, he's more concerned about Candy. He asks her why she knocked him out. Why does she meet with Joey? She tells him that she didn't want him to get hurt and she would not give up the address. But she knows that Joey took her purse. So now they know where he lives. Joey and his boss show up to search the shack. They find the other frame. Joey is ordered to make the drop off. Skip hears all this because he is hiding under the shack. He stealthily follows Joey to the subway station. They board the train car. It's crowded. Skip makes his way through the turbulent crowd, standing in front of Joey as he did Candy. Remember, Joey doesn't know what Skip looks like. Instead of a wallet, Skip pilfers Joey's pistol, kept in his breast pocket like the amateur he is. When Joey gets off, Skip continues to tail him, all the way to the subway's restroom, where Joey casually delivers the film on the edge of a sink. The man at said sink covers it with his hat and proceeds to leave. Skip knocks a courier out flat. A perplexed Joey reaches for his gun, only it's not there. Skip and Joey undergo a great scrap through the bathroom, into the corridor, into the terminal, through the turnstiles, down the stairs, and off the train platform. Skip has the physical advantage over Joey, but a train is coming. Joey falls into a recess into the wall of the subway tunnel, and Skip follows him as the train rushes by. Skip pummels Joey some more until he falls into unconsciousness. The film has been retrieved. Joey is in custody and in the hospital, and the feds are probably about to round up Joey's boss as well. But what Skip is concerned about is his own freedom. All charges have been dropped against him to Tiger's chagrin. Tiger rants and raves, assuring to all and sundry that Skip will be at it again. Wanna bet? A recovered candy snaps back to him. Was Skip's life saved by a good woman in the end, or will he resort to his old ways? If the latter, then the bad guys kind of win. Better petty crooks than commies, right? So there's your summary. Now it's time to put pickup on South Street to the ultimate test, the Lighting the Pipes Noir Review. As per usual, I have broken down my critique in three parts, story, acting, and atmosphere. Each are rated out of five, making a total of 15 possible points. Story. It's tight, precise in its storytelling. There isn't an entirely wasted scene in the film. From the pickpocketing on the subway after the credits to the showdown on the subway and the subway station and the climax, it's practically bookended. Fuller combines Joe McDonald's cinematography and editor Nick DiMaggio's montage to convey his yarn expertly. Skip McCoy begins his story as what, as what we perceive as a selfish man, smug, confident, and obnoxious. He is still that man at the end of the film, but he appreciates the toll that his life has had upon him and others. He honors Moe's dying wish not to be buried in Potter's Field, and in a measure of vengeance and protecting Candy, takes down Joey and in turn the spiring. But he's also not a hero at the end of the film. He's a small-time crook who revealed his humanity, his empathy, and may or not be cured by the love of a good woman like Candy. Yet Tiger reminds us that he will return to his old ways, and yet despite this hint of relapse, of recidivism, the journey has altered him in some capacity. Candy is a loyal girl even to Joey, but once she finds the right man, once she realizes what Joey and his business represent, her love for Skip, 
Not her love of country is what drives her to defy Joey, nearly martyring herself for her chosen man, but not for her country. Fuller here is definitely remaining apolitical and unsubtly reinforcing that agenda, or lack thereof, to the audience. Because Joey is a terrible boyfriend and a terrible man, but it's not because he is a communist, because that doesn't matter. He's a man paid by the highest bidder, devoid of ideology, terrorizing Candy, killing Mo, and betraying his country for, ironically, capital. He's more capitalist than Kami, the worst kind. Alternatively, Mo would do anything for a buck, Hegel, Tiger, and Zara, but she won't give Skip away to the Reds. She goes to her death, not in complete comprehension of Joey's political affiliation or understanding of that ideology, but just feeling in her gut that he's no good. Fuller delivers gritty, lived-in interior sets and yet wields symbolism and meaning into every shot of intended neorealism. He is sentimental but manages to make it seem more honest than what the most saccharine of Hollywood productions can offer. All the pieces fit, mostly. The apolitical message, the grandiose themes that Fuller is playing with are present, but it never takes you out of the story. For its taut, kinetically charged narrative, I give and pick up on South Street four and a half out of five. I didn't give it full marks, and nor am I rounding up. The love story for me was a little clunky. I bought Widmark and Peter's chemistry, but felt we needed an extra scene or two, maybe just one scene that would make me buy skips wearing vendors against Joey for candy, doing it all for candy. For me, this motivation was provided by Moe's death. So did we really need a reaffirmation with the love story? I don't know. I think Moe's ending would have been enough for Skip to do what he did, but instead, Candy knocks him out and makes a deal with the feds. Fuller was giving Candy a full arc here, and I get that, but it felt like it was wedged, not forced exactly, but neatly wedged into the final script, so Skip is changed by a good woman, which for me diminishes Moe's contribution to the story, as well as her sacrifice. Arguably, he was ready to go to meet with Joey, and probably go to his death. But Candy's love for him saves him, and in this cynical, realistic yarn, I found the love story aspect a little tacked on. Not in a bad way, but something that just weighs the film down a tad. I might even reconsider my thoughts on the love story. Yeah, I think Fuller should have just left that on the original script. I would also add that I found Joey was written less three-dimensionally as the other characters. We're not certain if he is a true believer or merely just a douchey mercenary. So that's another feather out of Pickup's proverbial hat. Now, for acting, Richard Widmark plays Skip as a smug, insolent, nearly punchable wise-ass. At first, with the pickpocketing of the wallet, the distress he places Candy in, and his dismissal of the importance of the microfilm when he meets with Tiger and Zara, made me really dislike him, despite appreciating Widmark's performance. I mean, the guy plays assholes well, especially psychotic assholes. But his growing fondness for Candy and his being devastated by Moe's death gave Widmark the right material to make me root for Skip, to the point of cheering for him to pummel the living snot out of Joey. Widmark demonstrates the chinks in his armor and lends the right amount of personal transformation with a dose of ambiguity, whether he will return to his old ways or not. Is he a changed man? Somewhat. And Widmark delivers wonderfully here. He only falls short for me outside of chemistry with Peters to make me fully believe he was in love with her. I see it in their scenes together, but I don't really see it in, in the scenes on his own. I think when it comes to the motivations of his character, it is all because of Mo. And Candy is an after-effect of that return to empathy, but I feel Fuller pushed a bit too hard with Taylor's romance angle from the original script. I feel that he was a little too subtle directing those scenes with Widmark and Peters. I bought his feelings for Candy, but only just. As I said, just a scene or two to reinforce in the story and in the performance. That's all. But major props to Gene Peters as Candy. Peters was very intelligent for an actress of her time. Fuller admits this. But the character she played was no intellectual, and not at all the supposed mistress of a communist. 
She lived a hard life before, and the way Peters moves and carries herself makes us feel it. She's not book smart, but she's street smart with a big heart. Her chemistry with, with Winmark is electric and is one of the few reasons for me that the love story holds up. I loved experiencing Candy's desperation when it dawns on her that Joey and his boss are communist spies. She wears her heart on her sleeve, and that's present on screen thanks to Peter's brave, defiant performance. There's a strength and pride and sensuality to Candy, and Peter's conveys this beautifully. Now, Thelma Ritter, I mean, she steals every scene she's in. She's a delight with every frame she's in. She subtly transforms from comic relief to tragic character and a catalyst for the rest of the narrative. The whole story rides on her fate. Facing her death at a muzzle of Joey's pistol, she is clearly afraid, but the exhaustion in her voice is so heartbreaking that we're already devastated before she is killed. With her final speech and her death, we, the audience, are bestowed with that empathy that Fuller wants us to feel about the ne'er-do-wells of society. Mission accomplished, Fuller. Richard Kiley as Joel is effective as an everyday schmuck who will do anything for money or get himself out of a jam. As I mentioned in the story segment of this review, I can't help feel that Fuller was a bit heavy-handed with Joey, but Kylie hit all the right notes with his performance. Mervyn Vye, who was known for comedic roles like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, played Lieutenant Tiger with a ferocity that the Huac-inspired feds like Zara lacked. Fuller almost emasculates the feds, to be honest, but Vye gives life to the vindictive Tiger, infusing him with an adamant charisma that he's successful to make us consider his parting words to skip. That he will come to no good once again, reinforcing that ambiguity. For acting, I give Pick up on South Street, four and a half out of five. Atmosphere. Well, those lived-in sets of cramped apartments, trashy alleyways, Skip's shack, the entire subway terminal built for the film, the police precinct, the police boat and the barge, the Chinese restaurant, the subway car with the most believable commuter extras ever placed on film. I mean, look at their annoyance and acquiescence as they're jostled here and there when more people are loaded onto the train. The Nawire-esque lighting is just naturalistic enough to convey the realism Fuller is gunning for, the ties hanging in the foreground while Candy and Mo talk, the hook between Candy and Skip, suggestive eye contact and hand movements when Skip pilfers Candy's purse. Every frame is just loaded with information. The sound design makes us feel the life of New York City, a bustling, angry, chaotic city in the middle of summer. You can feel everyone burdened by everything that is going on. Lee Harline's score is evocative enough, but it seems almost window-dressing to the proceedings, so I didn't really notice it except as a bookend with the opening and closing credits. The atmosphere of this film is not dependent on its musical score, and with a cornucopia brandished by Fuller and co., it seems like an afterthought. That said, 5 out of 5 for atmosphere. I fully believed I was there with Skip McCoy et al. in the streets of New York City, despite the fact that it was filmed in a studio in Los Angeles. Bravo. So that means I am giving Pick Up on South Street 14 out of 15 points. Well deserved. It was fast-paced, emotionally and visually compelling with colorful characters. I love Fuller's snappy, fast-talking style. How he conveyed humor and desperation, how he suddenly erupted into violence but it never seemed gratuitous. When violence is utilized, whether it's Moe's death or Candy's beating, it's galvanizing, even when we should be satisfied that Joey got his lumps. We feel the vulnerability of these characters. We relate to them somehow. Well, that's all I got for the episode of Lighting the Pipes Noir. Check out our Instagram page, pipes underscore pod, where we post for both Lighting the Pipes and LTP Noir, so you can keep up with us there. We got some exciting new titles coming up for Lighting the Pipes, and I'm already deliberating what classic noir I'm going to choose next. But feel free to leave your comments on our Instagram page. 
What are your thoughts on Pickup on South Street or this review? Please let us know. Until the next time, I am Joshua Taylor, and this has been Lighting the Pipes Noir.